as the resident character woman at Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater for the past 30 years. She has appeared in and directed productions simply too numerous to name. She made a splash on Broadway when she traveled with Steppenwolf to Broadway in Tracy Letts' August Osage County. But right now, she's starring in a big Broadway musical, playing Madame Morrible in Wicked, a role she first played in the original Chicago company of that musical juggernaut. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very pleased to welcome the very versatile Rondi Reed. Hi, Rondi. Hi, Howard. Thanks. So we're going to talk a lot about the 30 years of Steppenwolf, but let's let's talk about the current thing, uh-huh. being the one of the leads in a big Broadway <laughs> musical, well, which one this multi-page list of your credits I mm-hmm. have doesn't tr- really suggest. No, it doesn't. But there's that um, that little second grade girl inside of me that sort of had that dream for a long, long time. I was. Uh, going into a new agent's office in Chicago, this Stuart talent. And uh, I went in to speak to my agent, Sam, at the time. And um, he said, all right, tell me what you want to do. Tell me what you see for the next five years. And I said, well, I'll tell you something I've always wanted to do. I've wanted to be in a big Broadway musical. And he burst out laughing, literally in my face. And he went, really? And I said, yes, really. And so thus began a subsequent chain of auditions, um, several of which were fairly humiliating. Uh, yeah, I went up on my lyrics and I didn't – I was so out of my depth because, I mean, I was fortunate enough to be cast at a couple of musicals at Marriott Lincolnshire in the uh, um, Chicago area. I think they felt sort of a vicarious thrill by having a real actor who was sort of <laughs> interested in, in that. My agent at the time even said, you want to go do a what? A musical? And uh, so – I said, yes, I want to pursue that. And then finally Wicked came along out of the blue seemingly. I was doing my first Shakespeare play, Romeo and Juliet, with Mark Lamos down at Chicago Shakespeare. Terrific project. And uh, out of the blue lands this Wicked audition. And I said, no, no, they don't want me. They want some TV star and, you know, they want somebody who's this and this. And they said, just go, just go. And um, I went to the audition. They said, we want you at the callback. I went to the callback in New York. I was in the room all of seven minutes, I think, with the entire creative team, Joe Mantello and Winnie Hausman and Holzman and um, Stephen Schwartz and David Stone and everybody else. And I was out of the room and back on the plane. And by the time I landed, I had the job offer. Wow. I was like, five years ago. So – when that com- first company was put together for mm-hmm. Chicago, do I remember correctly, it was originally going to tour and it was such well, a success the it, they just kept it going? Of, the way it happened was it had opened on Broadway and they were looking at the first tour and the first tour was actually cast and going out and it was in Toronto. Uh, Stephanie Block and Carol Kane was playing Madame Morrible. And one of the first stops along the way was Chicago and it was such a blowout smash in Chicago that the idea began to percolate about let's what about a sit-down production. And they sort of pitched it um, to Mr. Niederlander who said, well, Chicago used to be a big tryout town and let's give it a whirl. And so David Stone made the – and Mark Platt made the leap to do a sit-down production, which is why it all came about quite quickly. I mean hmm. the wheels started in motion and they wanted to cast uh, 
several Chicago local people in it. Myself and Gene Wygant and Heidi Kettenring and, you know, they ended up with Anna Gasteyer and uh, Kate Reinders as the two girls. But um, it was a phenomenal success. It ran for over four years there, just recently closed. So how long did you do it in Chicago? I did it about two and a half years off and on because Mm -hmm. I – the producers were so lovely to me and, of course, I had booked four plays in Chicago in advance and then I got cast in Wicked. And so I had to go to those four artistic directors and beg to be either either let out or, you know, I'll make it up to you. And they were all incredibly uh, gracious about it. But my agent said, you know what, why don't we see if we can keep one of these intact? And I was going to do Retreat from Moscow with John Mahoney up at Northlight Theater. He said, let's try to keep this intact because it might be a good time for a break and we don't know how long Wicked is going to run. And so that's indeed what we did. And Wicked was gracious enough to let me go and come back. And I did that twice. And the other time was for August Osage County. Hmm. Now, I've got to ask, you you mentioned these musicals at Marriott Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. So what were you in there? I was in Cabaret. That was the first one I went out and auditioned for, Fräulein Schneider, which I had a ball playing. It was just wonderful. It was in the summer. It was like being at a big summer camp with a bunch of musical theater types. I fell madly in love with the whole ambiance, mm-hmm. everything about it. And then I did Funny Girl out there. I played Mrs. Bryce. And 14 years later, I reprised that role. I thought, hmm, I'm playing the same role only 14 years later. Um, They've asked me several times to come back. I just can never juggle it with my schedule. But the scale, I've not been to Marriott Lincolnshire. 800 seats in the round. Right. Not the same scale as playing the Gershwin here in New York. And presumably in uh, a possibly even larger house in Chicago. The Oriental, where Wicked was in Chicago, was about 2,200 seats. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a theater from the 20s. Very, you know, there are two two balconies and it's but it's sort of eccentrically uh, all the decorations are very baroque and it was in that whole heyday of of that kind of decoration so wicked because of the world of oz sort of fit in there really magically um, it made the transition to august on broadway much easier for me because mm-hmm. i had played in that large theater and Steppenwolf is 525 seats, but yet at the same time, it's very intimate and very close. And so you don't really have that concept of having to play big but still stay connected and stay intimate and stay in your scene. And it was something that we struggled with with August once we made the jump to the Imperial because the Imperial here in New York is is a musical house. Right. But it would seem that these these couple of other musicals notwithstanding, Mm -hmm. you have been part of – an artistic company, you work with actors who you know well mm-hmm. all the time, but on plays which set their own pace. Yes. Whereas a musical, you hit your marks and you hit yeah. your notes yeah. and you yeah. – you, yeah. it, it's a machine. Yes. So what was it like to be embraced in something that on the one hand has an exuberance but is also – a regimented yeah. – very regimented Very process. regimented. I have to tell you, I said to Joe Mantello somewhere in the middle of year two uh, that I was doing it, I said, the learning curve for this project for me is huge. I've never had demands like this. I've never had to be so consistent. I've never had as long of a run. I've never had to adjust to changing casts and changing conductors and, you know, just the dynamics of what a big, big, and this is a big musical. This is about as big as it gets. And the 
and the bar is set very high. I mean, the producers um, work to keep it in shape, to keep it on the level that it is, and you know, you're getting notes, you're working on it, you're in rehearsal, uh, tweaking stuff over the last six years, even stuff that they've improved as they've done other productions around the country and around the world. So it presented an enormous challenge to me. I've said to people, I've probably learned more and wicked about so many things. I, I cannot even begin to tell you. And I'm also usually one of the senior members of the cast. Um, and I know that I've been told before by, you know, producers, stage managers, ADs that, you know, we look to you because you are established. You have been, you have the experience for, because the mean age of the Chicago production was about 23. Mm-hmm. So, and you have a lot of these kids that have come right out of school. They really don't have the experience. They certainly have the talent, but they don't have necessarily, they haven't been taught the discipline or the ropes or the kind of the ambiance that needs to be held up backstage and as a working professional. So they look to you. So do you consciously no. offer yourself as as the sage no, of the wicked company? No, absolutely not. And there, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and they know it too. My first two years in Wicked, I really struggled with stuff. I was frustrated. I was, you know, I'd get upset. I'd be like, I don't understand that. Why? What do you mean when you say that? And how am I? So it's difficult to be outside of it and to realize what they see as the whole scope of the production and how you fit into what you need to do personally. And I think too, it's like anything in the long run. I did um, Steve Martin's play, Picasso at the La Panagia. I think I did something like 837 performances and we did it off Broadway up at the well, the promenade, mm-hmm. which we miss. Um, but I reached a point in that in about year three where I kind of got very zen about it. I began to realize I learned a lot of things that I didn't have to do, things that I was wasting my energy doing, things that I would get very worked up about that were really not to the point. And I learned how to contribute but not feel like I had to drag the whole thing on my back. And in fact, mm-hmm. the director said to me, you know what? You can't carry this whole play on your back. So stop it. Do your job. You do it well. And I need you to do that specifically. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the issue of changing casts. Mm-hmm. How, does your performance change with the people that you play opposite or or is it – Well, I don't think it changes. I mean – Wicked really wants people to be able to go wherever they are and walk in and see the same show. Mm-hmm. That's what they want. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to see a cookie cutter thing because it's impossible. Given well, you mentioned Carol Kane. I mean, you yeah, and Carol Kane are different. not the same person. Carol Shelley originated the role. Absolutely. Um, Rue McClanahan, Joanne Worley, Patty Duke just did it in San Francisco and L.A. So there's – and it follows with most of those principal roles in Wicked. There's a lot of breathing room. And uh, Mandy Gonzalez is going to be our new alphabet from In the Heights. You know, I mean, it's it's there's so much room in there to breathe, but they keep us on a. I would say they really reinforce the story track. We want to tell the story. You have a little room to make it your own, but we owe the story, the story and the music and the show as a whole, which even in August Osage County or anything we do at Steppenwolf, that's the bottom line. You can – yes, of course, it's coming through you, but you have to respect the director. You respect the production and certainly once you go into a long run, you respect the stage managers who have to keep it in shape and keep it focused or things get out of control. And as an audience member, I've seen shows like that. It really upsets me. Mm. <laughs> 
Now, I have to assume that in Chicago, among theater goers, mm-hmm. if anybody ran into you at the local Walmart or mm-hmm. something, they'd know exactly who you are from 30 years because you build up a recognition yeah. when you stay in the same community. Yet Wicked has a volume of interest and attention. <laughs> and so I'm wondering now, especially doing it here in New York, um, is is there a recognition factor that's been raised for you? I'll tell you what's funny. No, because I'm usually, thankfully, a little bit unrecognizable when I come out. People say, oh, my God, you're so young. Oh, you're so short. <laughs> and uh, because it's quite a getup, quite a fantastical makeup and wig. And, the uh, you know, Susan Hilford, who did these genius costumes, when I went in for my fitting, she went, oh, Rhonda, you've got the body I designed this costume for. And I said, no one's ever said that to me. Hmm. Um, she said, you're tall. You have broad shoulders. You have long arms. Um, I'm pretty formidable. I'm probably about six foot three in my getup. And um, so when I come out, people are surprised. They say, you look so normal. Um, I was really recognized as Maddie Faye much more in New York. I would be standing on a street corner and somebody would say, I think you're a lot sexier than a cardboard box, which is a reference to one of the lines that my sister would say. You know, you're about as sexy as a cardboard box, a wet cardboard box. Um, so, Were these people hitting on you? Or no, they- <laughs> I don't know. It was an odd sort of uh, flirtation. But in Chicago, even though they don't – a lot of people don't know my name, but I'll be at the dog beach or I'll be at the grocery store and – Evanston and people go, oh, you're that, you're that woman. You're that actress. I've seen you for 20 years. Oh, my God. And they literally are like familial because they've seen us grow up, so many of us at Steppenwolf. And, they've, and I've been a member for 30 years, which yeah. is kind of staggering for me to even think about. Absolutely. Well, let's go back. Mm-hmm. You were born in a, a small town, Very Dixon, small Illinois. Town. Yes. How small is Dixon, Illinois? Uh, at the time I was there, it was about 21,000. It also has the claim to fame of being Ronald Reagan's hometown. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Where did uh, theater come into your life? Oh, gosh. I said – I've told this story I think to the New York Times once. It was I think first or second grade and I came home and said to my mom, we're doing Johnny Appleseed as the operetta and if I have a bonnet, I can be a pioneer woman and stand in the front row. And she said, I don't have a bonnet. What do you mean (laughs) Pioneer bonnet. And I was like, no, I have to have a bonnet. And she was, you know, working as a secretary. My dad was working. And she said, well, I don't. So I went to the closet and dug out my younger sister's uh, Easter outfit. She had a coat with a bonnet that she would wear. And I wore it and I got to stand in the front row ever since. And that was it? That was it. All All through grade school. I was also an incredibly avid, voracious reader. We read out loud in those days. I don't know whether they do it, but I also had a first grade teacher, uh, Miss McCoy, who would send me home with fourth grade level books and encourage my reading and my I won always won reading awards and spelling awards and vocabulary. I tested like off the charts in that. My math and science were god awful. Hmm. So, but I was I was encouraged, but I was not particularly. Nobody in my family had ever done anything like that. And, you know, my mom sewed a costume for me once, but I think, and I wanted desperately to do ballet, but somehow I ended up in tap and baton. <laughs> I was fascinated. It was reading um, a, a interview that you did that's on the Steppenwolf website mm-hmm. um, about the fact that once you got into high school, you had a good friend who was your drama club friend. Yep. Uh, Joel Drake Johnson, yeah. mm-hmm. who 
ultimately you ended up doing – appearing in a play yes. by him at yes. Steppenwolf all those years later. Yes. But in in the high school days, you were you were theater buddies. We were theater buddies. There were about six or seven of us that all hung – you know, it's like I see this in younger kids nowadays too. If you're not with the brainiacs or the cool kids or the jocks, you end up gravitating, you know, the, which is why I think the show Glee has such a huge following. Well, you know? I keep hoping it's going to redeem every kid who wanted to be <laughs> in theater and, and we'll, they'll all be empowered. Absolutely. And I've taught that age of students as well and there's something that being – with that peer group and realizing you're not the only geek in the bunch and uh, I remember the first time I met Joel we were in study hall, this huge study hall and the night before I had stayed up and watched Johnny Carson who was in New York at the time and would have Broadway show numbers on well, the night that I watched was Hair. Not this revival of Hair, the original Hair, I'm dating myself but, and they came through the seats, walking on top of the seats in that studio where Johnny Carson was and they came down and they did the number hair and then they finished up with Aquarius and my mind was positively blown and I went to study hall the next day and Joel turned around and he said did you happen to see Johnny Carson last night I went oh my god and that was it we were bonded forever Hmm. did you (laughs) did you as I know kids in my drama club did Uh sit around and dream of what you would do in theater one day yeah, I mean, we wore the – and they were albums. They were not CDs. You know, Company and – I mean, every album we could get our hands on. We knew all the lyrics. We knew all the song And Promises, Promises, I can't believe that's coming back mm-hmm. because that was another one of the ones that we knew all the words to and we would dance around the living room, chorus line, any of that stuff. I mean, it, it, we were we were really truly geeks. But we believed in – Real theater and disciplined theater and Illinois State University came into this mix and that's where the seeds of everything began for me. You went to Illinois State to yes. study acting? Well, at the time, they didn't have a theater department. Mm. They had a speech department. And there was a professor down there, Ralph Lane, who was going around the state of Illinois to theater contests and drama speech contests and recruiting kids because he had money for talent grants. Unheard of. Wow. Relatively unheard of. And for some reason, he, he had been a high school teacher in the northern suburbs of Chicago and he had now come to this college, this little college department that was sort of coming out of the 60s and all these kind of semi-radical – You know, there were six or eight professors that were sort of germinating this whole kind of department down there. So I was recruited as a talent grant student. Wow. Mm-hmm. As was Terry Kinney, as was – you know, there were a whole slew of us that came down there under those – Pretenses. Well, it's actually at Illinois State that mm-hmm. the core of Steppenwolf yep. found each other. So yep. who who was there? You mentioned Terry. Well, Terry Kinney was there and Jeff Perry and H.E. Bacchus, who was our first artistic director but left about halfway through the <laughs> second year. John Malkovich was there. Lori Metcalf was there. Um, you know, it, it – it was something – Moira Harris was there. Gary Sinise was friends with Jeff Perry in high school, so he kind of came in. And it was a very fertile time and they also – the faculty just sort of let you do – we were rehearsing at one thirty in the morning in the building. They never knew what we were doing. We were just doing it. And so they sort of gave you free reign to be creative and that was the kind of – I guess I would say kind of the – 
the ground upon which these seeds sort of fell for Steppenwolf. Hmm. Plus we had people like Carl Malden came in, Leonard Nimoy came in, Lee Strasberg came in and they would say things like, you don't have to go to New York. You don't have to go to Hollywood. You can do theater where you are. And that was the first time we'd ever heard that sentiment. Before, there had only been those two cities in our minds. So they were the people that planted the idea that that was even a possibility. Hmm. Now – I should have had this written down, so I hope I get it right. Uh-huh. It was ultimately Gary and Jeff and Terry yes. who were founders, the core yeah. of founding. Yeah, they were the founders. Steppenwolf. Was that immediately after their after graduation from Illinois State? Well, Jeff dropped out of college. Gary never went to college. Oh. Terry, I mean, they had started this sort of uh I think the story goes that Jeff dragged Gary into an audition for West Side Story in high school because Gary had a rock band and was going to drop out of school and Jeff sort of saved him, got him interested in West Side Story. And so uh, Jeff only went to Illinois State for a year. He was incredibly talented and really burned out. I mean he Hmm. burned out in a nanosecond. So it was out of that genesis of can we do our own stuff? Can we have our own theater? Can we provide our own work? And they started in the basement in Highland Park, Illinois. Did they immediately say, hey, Rondi, come with no. us? No, and I ha- I was in on the initial meetings about having the theater and I had just fallen madly in love with my boyfriend who was going to go off to graduate school at University of Minnesota and I said, let me know how it goes call me. And so we would – every time we would come back to the area over the holidays, we would see them. We would see a show. Um, and then after four years in the suburbs, they decided to move into the city proper. And that's when they said to me, OK, we don't have any character women and we want you to come and join. Hmm. So it was um, 1979, 80 is when I joined. But I don't want to jump past. You've mm-hmm. gotten a, You've gotten a degree from Illinois yes. State. You're totally enthralled with theater. Mm-hmm. Your boyfriend led you to Minneapolis yes. where he was doing uh, – He was in the MFA the, program the directing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, were you acting in, in Minnesota? Yes. Uh, not right away. For the first few months, I, we were just sort of trying to survive uh, – and, and winter in Minneapolis was an adventure uh, for the uninitiated. Even for someone who had oh, been in Chicago. Yeah. It was, I mean ever after that, nothing much phases me. Um, I ended up working as a bank teller and I got my feet wet in theater and I auditioned for Theater in the Round where the director happened to be Emily Mann who is a graduate student who was getting ready to go and direct her first play at the Guthrie at the time. She was the first woman director to direct at the Guthrie. production of The Glass Menagerie. Glass Menagerie. And we were doing a play by Charles Nolte who was also a professor of my boyfriend's at the University of Minnesota, recently passed away, lovely man. And um, I did a play there and I did a play at uh, Chimera Theater in St. Paul. They had an incredibly – deep pool of actors that were in literally community theater Hmm. in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Because it's interesting and and as we come to the discussion of Chicago theater, Mm -hmm. Greg Mosier had done this program a couple of weeks ago and he said you have to remember that Chicago theater then isn't what Chicago theater was now and presumably the same was true in Minneapolis. Yes. Certainly the Guthrie was there. That was it really and that was the whole reason we had gone there. My boyfriend Steve, later husband, later ex-husband, but wanted to be an intern at the Guthrie. Hmm. And he was into his third year MFA thesis production and he said, okay, now we can take you. And he said, I've got to finish my thesis production. And it was right after that that Steppenwolf called and we made the move to Chicago. 
So when somebody calls you and mm-hmm. says, we want you to be our character woman, <laughs> what is the reaction when you are a lovely young woman in her 20s? Well, I'd always done those roles. So, I mean, I I had – those parts are always more fun anyway. I was never an ingenue. It wasn't until I got to Steppenwolf in about year two and Sheldon Potenkin, who was directing Arms on the Man, said, well, why don't you play the ingenue, the maid, Luca? And I went – who, me? And he said, I think you have an ingenue in the inside raging to get out. Hmm. And I had never thought an of myself. raging to get out. That's a <laughs> lovely image. I had never thought of myself in terms like that. So as Steppenwolf, you were able – we all played above our age, below our age, away from type, not type. I mean that was the advantage because there were only – at the time I joined 14 of us and we did everything. Hmm. Now, it – if the chronology I have is correct, one of the very first things you did there was Bomb and Gilead. Um, yes, within the first year, yeah. And that show ultimately ended up in New York, but a number yes. of years later, was it remounted by the company? Or It was four years after we had originally done yeah. it. They, the Apollo Theater, which was a semi-commercial theater owned by Stuart Oaken at the time in mm-hmm. Chicago – and uh, they said, we're looking for something to put in for the summer and that we can remount. And we think there were so many people that wanted to see Balm and Gilead and didn't. And so what do you say? And so we also joined up with the Remains Theater Company, which is a Chicago base. They do not exist anymore. But that was Amy Morton and William L. Peterson and Gary Cole and Don Moffat. And uh, so we did a co-production with them of a limited run in the summer of Balm and Gilead. And then it went to New York to Circle in the Square. Did you go with? I did not go because I was doing a little play called Fool for Love in Chicago with William L. Peterson. And I felt like – I think also too my husband said, you don't need to go to New York. New York was seen as a very sort of big threatening, uh, once you go there, you'll never come back kind of thing. Hmm. Uh, And it proved true for a lot of the people that went with that because a lot of them from New York either stayed in New York or went to Los Angeles from that springboard of balm. Hmm. I'm just imagining uh, you and William L. Peterson (laughs) – Throwing each other around that yeah, hotel room of Sam Shepard's mm-hmm. because that's what that play was. And Terry Kinney directed it too. So what was the scene like? Because there are I, – I hear of so many of these theaters. You mentioned Remains, mm-hmm. um, St. Nicholas Company, mm-hmm. which of course were, where David Mamet's work was being done. Yeah. I mean what was going on in Chicago and how did – all of you find each other because you have very casually mentioned, yeah. you know, people who are now well. And Bob Falls, he's another one. You know, I mean, I think I think it was the time, and I think people began to gravitate to Chicago. And certainly, we have to give credit to the Organic Theater, which is Stuart one of the Gordon, first ones. Yep. And Greg Mosier, who was with the Goodman, but was into the little studio theater things. And Greg was breaking down a lot of stuff that that the established kind of theater. And Bob was running Wisdom Bridge Theater at the time. Right. So, I mean, uh, Richard Christensen uh, wrote a book about this, which is a terrific book for anybody that wants a, a cross-section of what that Chicago theater was. Incredibly fertile time. Possibilities were abundant. Rent was cheap. You could rent a place and get a play and do it and people would come. I mean, it was... this is always what amazes me about people that manage to do that in New York. I still don't know how they do it. Um, but I mean, in Chicago, it was like everybody could do it. I think at one point in time, the League of Chicago Theater said there was something like 187 theaters. Hmm. 
off-loop theaters. Mm-hmm. And for a while, the loop theater, which is the downtown theater, the big really dwindled. And it was only through the actions of Mayor Daley to kind of reinvigorate it and bring it back that it started back up. Well, it was also the touring in that the era touring, had right. faded. Yes. And it was when the big mega musicals, yes. once you got into the latter part of the 80s, began yeah. to go out on tour. There were there were shows that supported exactly. reinvigorating those theaters. Yeah. And the, pe- the theaters were rebuilt for exactly. Phantom or yeah. or exactly. or Miss Saigon. But that time, I mean, though that was – you had a group of people that were all – you know, I mean, the ages range, but we were all pretty much in our late 20s, early 30s, and that was this incredibly the energy was just humming I mean it was just humming and it was like you could make things happen and you could do it and you could you know it's sort of like you know you didn't care what anybody else was doing in the rest of the country There is within the stories of Steppenwolf, mm-hmm. and I assume the other companies were all interlinked in some ways. It, it was rather incestuous because you found so many people were <laughs> having personal relationships yeah. at the same time yeah. that they I were think all it's parts be- of the We company. always said it was because you ended up with the same 12 people in the room. You never – you know, you didn't – and I think some of it originated because it was very insulated and it was safe and we sort of kept to ourselves and we and we were – I mean, after several years, people got very sick of that because it was like penetrating literally a, a pack of wolves because we kept to our own and we bred with our own and we, you know, we didn't let anybody in from the outside and, you know, very protectionist. And then, you know, of course, like everything else, it had to change. And uh, it did change with whether it was an outside director or designer or an actor that somebody had worked with and, you know, a film and they said, I really think this person should come in. And, you know, once people began to leave and go away, Malcolm was one of the first ones that left and went off to do something. In fact, opening night of Ball and Gilead, uh, he had to leave the day before. He was shooting a movie somewhere up in Michigan. And I remember us thinking, oh, it'll never be the same. Hmm. It'll never be. And then, of course, True West happened and our lives were changed forever with that. In what way? Um, it put us on the map. Mm-hmm. People knew and are you what- talking about the- – True West once it was here in New York. Yes, with John Malkovich and, and Gary, Gary Sinise. Sinise. And that was the first major revival since the debacle at the public right. with it. And um, it literally kicked down the door for Steppenwolf. It, you know, we got all the press about the Chicago, the rock and roll acting style and Chicago theater and what that means. And, oh, my God, there's something going on, you know, west of, you know, Ohio. And uh, so it was a big, big big deal. Hmm. And um, it influenced a lot of things. We were able to get rights to plays we had never been able to get before. New York sat up and take, took notice. John's film career kicked off you know, insanely. And then when Ball moved to New York, that sort of brought that whole thing along. Lori was, of course, discovered as well. She should have been. And um, there were just a lot of things that sort of forever put us on a path of um, – you have to leave your home to go be validated. Hmm. You mentioned the rock and roll theater. <laughs> I mean, looking back, I mean, do you think that was an appropriate uh, way of encapsulating what you were doing? I think it was at the time. Really? Absolutely. I think there's always been and there still is, though we're now old enough to be the parents of rock and roll. But um, there's been a fearlessness uh, kind of an in-your-face, we would challenge each other, please each other, go head-to-head with each other because that's who we were with. And and the bar was set so high within the group for each other that it became 
you know, the overarching thing like, all right, can I, can I do more? Can I go further? Can I inhabit this? Not for the sheer sake of it, but for dialing it up and making it lift up off the page for ourselves and for the writer and, and for the, all our directors were actors at the beginning. Being an ensemble, was some of it actual competitiveness? Eh, I think there was at times. I also think, too, when the first few people began to experience the smack of celebrity and, and attention before it had been all for one and one for all. And then it's inevitable that when some people go off and, – and Joan Allen was another case in point with Anna Nightingale sang when that came out uh, east and her career took off incredibly. I mean uh, – it's like there are the people that stayed back at home and then there were the people that went off and then there were the people that did movies and then there were the people that never did movies. Um, you kind of had to negotiate individually how you felt about everything. And there were rough – there were many, 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 many late-night meetings where, you know, should we just close the doors and disband? Should we say it was great and let it go? And, you know, Jeff would be quoting from history about the group theater and all the demons that invaded them and – you know, I mean, there was really no precedent for an American theater company, a resident ensemble. I mean, you know, ACT, and there were other theaters all across the country but who had tried that. But they were driven by a single artistic director, yes, they and were. yours was driven by an ensemble yes. initially, really, of actors. Yes. You all ended up directing, which yes. is also fascinating. Yes. And every artistic director has been a member of the ensemble, right. which is unheard of. Um, so, the, and and I think there's pros and cons for all of that. I mean, there was a time where we voted on everything from what the colors of the brochure were to who's going to clean the bathrooms and what should we do and how should we have this. And and then it became untenable for anybody that was trying to run it. And we swore we would never become an institution and we are an institution. Hmm. You said there are those who went to off and there yeah. are those who stayed home. Mm -hmm. You chose to stay home. I did at Why? the time. Um, I think because I was married and my husband was the managing director of the theater and I didn't particularly have any drive to go to either coast. I felt I was really getting better as an actor. I felt like I – and I was working a lot back to back to back to back to back. I was teaching acting at the time. Um, I felt it was a really productive time for me and also I was really happy. Mm -hmm. I was really happy. I didn't really feel the need or the urge or the interest to expand and go. And I felt like, you know, I remember talking to Malkovich one day and I felt like his little sister. And I was like, why are you leaving? Why do you have to leave? And he said, honey, it's just time for me to go. I've done everything I can do here. And I just did not get it. I didn't get it. Hmm. But that was where but he was. was it because you didn't feel you'd done I everything you that. could do? Yeah, I didn't feel that. I later did get to that point when I, but I had to be sort of shoved out of the nest to go to Los Angeles, and and then by happenstance had been to New York a couple times with different projects, but it was never my own doing. I was just sort of kind of booted out and along the way. So. Hmm. Were there? Let's let's take say the first ten years mm -hmm. because we can't talk about all of these shows, but. <laughs> You know, was there anything for that you considered for you personally a breakthrough, a really important show? Well, I think Full for Love was a huge turning point yeah. for me in my acting. And Terry Kinney was the director and and William Peterson who was – you know, I was a little terrified and very much in awe of him. But he was a big marshmallow and was 
an incredible, incredible person to work with. One of the best I've ever worked with in my life. I mean, you always hear actors talking about how you have to trust each other in yeah. a show as physical yes. as that. If yes. you don't trust, yeah. If, yeah. if those two two actors don't trust each other, yeah. you're in you're real done. trouble. Yeah, yeah. Because you won't. Um, and leave. the wonderful thing about Billy was he was so matter of fact. He was so there. He was so grounded. He was like, you know, let's deal with it. Let's do it. Let's cut to the chase. Let's, you know, um, down to earth, funny. Um, you know, and Terry, at one point we were doing a scene and, and I, I said, tell me, tell me. He said, you just, you just need to stop acting. You just need to, you know, and I was saying, I don't understand. And I threw myself up against the wall. I was so frustrated. He goes, that, that's what I want. Hmm. So you've mentioned that there were things that took you to New York, which were mm-hmm. Steppenwolf productions. Yes. You uh, – would Grapes of Wrath have been the first? That was my first one, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you go out – so that was the production that went out to La Jolla? Yes. And then- I was in that from the beginning. Uh, mm-hmm. Frank Galati, who had joined the company right about then, and I, I was very enamored with working with him and excited. He said, you're too young for me to cast you as Maud Joad. I really want to cast age appropriate. I want to see the generations, in, which was unheard of for us. We had always – cast whoever we wanted to. So we were casting at that time. Lois Smith came in to read and, and walked Ma Jode into the room basically um, and I read with her and I mean the rest is history. And you understudied. I understood. He said to me, will you be standby for her because mm-hmm. I need you. Um, he said – and this was before Lois walked in the room. He said, I'm looking. I'm looking for Ma Jode. I haven't found her. Hmm. Um but he said, I think she's out there and will you be my standby? And I said, of course. And I ended up being the only Steppenwolf woman who was in Grapes of Wrath. Um, Jeff was in it and Terry was in it and Gary. But I was the only other Steppenwolf woman. And uh, people say what – and I always say I played the third Dust Bowl woman from the left, which I did. But um, darn proud to do it. And I was in all the incarnations of it. The first production was four and a half hours long. Mm. Then the second one, we went to La Jolla and Frank retooled the script. And then we went to the National Theater of London, which this is now 20 years ago. And we were just over there last year uh, with August. So we did that at the National, which was an incredible, life-changing experience. And then we came to Broadway with it and I did it for six months on Broadway. Hmm. And it did won you the ever Tony get, Award. Did you ever get to play Ma Jode? I never did, and I lived in terror because Lois was so definitive. But you know, when you rehearse as a standby on Broadway, you don't get to use all the props and all the stuff. You know, you just sort of do it very bare bones. And uh, Ma Jode packed up every single thing in that car, and she was the one organizing all. And I was just like, "Oh my God, please don't let it happen." Being a standby and understudy is pretty nerve-wracking. <laughs> I have enormous respect for the people that do it. Hmm. Now, the next time um, you came to Broadway mm-hmm. would have been the rise and fall of Little Voice, yes, which was. in contrast to <laughs> the reception for Grapes of Wrath was not embraced. Oh, no. Vilified would be the word I would use, I think. What was the impact on you and on the company of that experience? Um, you know, I have to tell you, that again was – I was never sure that it was a Broadway play. I'm not sure. But Simon Curtis, who was a British director and had known the playwright, Jim Cartwright, and had directed Road in London, wanted to come and do it here. So it was kind of an impetus and we had uh, 
Leonard Soloway, who was one of the producers. And so they felt like it could really go and it was funny and you had the novelty of the singing and they thought it was a con- – and at the time, it was a million plus to mount this play and it was a straight play and it went into the Neil Simon. And it had a lot of things going against it and it was also the season of The Inspector Calls and Diana Rigg and Medea. I mean it was a rough, tough season. They were not in the mood for this play. Hmm. And um, – they hated – I mean I really – I didn't read the reviews. I swore off reading the reviews in Chicago because they were pretty vitriolic. Um, I didn't read the reviews here. I know how much people hated it. But honest to God, I've been on more movie sets, places in New York and LA and people say, are you sure? You, I, you look so familiar. And what they did was they gave away tickets to thousands of actors. So I have – all these actors that saw me do it that loved the play, that loved my performance and they could never understand. you know. So that's sort of been the gift that came back and also to work with a playwright like Jim Cartwright, which was absolutely astounding. I keep waiting for some smart producer to remount that play. Because they remounted it in London oh. with a um, – you know, like American Idol kind of winner playing well, the LV it, part. But yeah. it, ultimately, I mean it's in some ways the Susan Boyle story. It kind Years of is. Before anybody knew who yeah. Susan Boyle was. It kind of is. So, yeah. so yeah. it's extraordinary. So I asked you about the first decade. Mm-hmm. What would you say in the 90s was – I mean certainly a chunk of the 90s was taken up doing La Panagile. Yes, it was. Yeah, and that was an incredible experience. I mean we opened our studio theater in at Steppenwolf. We built a new building in 1991. We opened it with Ron Harwood's production of Another Time. He came and directed it. He was also the playwright and Albert Finney came and did it. So I got to act with Albert Finney, which was pretty darn fabulous. <laughs> um, I played his wife in the first act and then the play jumps forward almost 40 years and I played his mother in the second act and uh, talk about a master class between Ron Harwood and Albert Finney. It was – and Terry Kinney was in it and Molly Reagan was in it and uh, it was it was just unbelievable. So after that came Picasso and again, here we are with Steve Martin sitting. He was one of the first people I knew that owned a laptop and he wrote his <laughs> play completely on his computer laptop and he would sit in rehearsal. Tim Hopper was in it, Jeff Perry, myself – um, you know, uh, local Chicago people as well. And he would sit and type with his glasses perched on the end of his nose. And I think the story goes at the end of the first week, he told the director, Randy Arney, he wanted all of us fired. And Randy said, Steve, it's not a movie. It's a play. We don't, we, they will get better. They will <laughs> figure out what's going on. Uh-huh. And it was really his first introduction to that. And so he came and was with us through the whole time working on it. And then we took it to the Westwood Playhouse. It was called at the time, now the Geffen. And we worked on it there and then we had an opportunity to take it off Broadway to the promenade and then I went with it there and it Steve had extensively reworked it and had gained a real perspective on what it took to to write a play and to have it grow and you know and I learned enormous amounts from him about I don't know, he's he's a very, very smart guy, philosophy major and college. And uh, I said to him, I had this one long speech and I said, now you don't have much punctuation in here. I said, I assume that you want this all to be one thought and where do you, he goes, well, I don't know. I don't really think about that when I write it. I just write what I think she would say. 
Hmm. It just comes out. So I had a really great education from working with him. And Tracy Letts was also in that production for a while. And we said, well, you know, if you think it's funny, maybe you ought to run it by the guy that wrote it. He probably knows what's funny about it. Hmm. So it was, again, an incredible opportunity. Hmm. Now – because the Steppenwolf website is so useful, I have all of your Steppenwolf credits. Um, how much were you doing loanouts to other studios in Chicago? I mean, were you really spending your time yes. all at Steppenwolf? You nobody not- would cast me, to be honest, Howard. Really? No, nobody would. Why? Uh, Marriott cast me. What do you think? Me. Because I think some of it was she's got her own theater to do things at. Um, I would go in and audition for stuff, but people were not really that interested in casting me. Huh. To be honest, I think – I mean uh, there were a few actors that went and worked at other theaters but not many, not many. It was a bit of a um, – well, there was a bit of a resistance to it and I understand it. Um, I understand it. Stefan Wolf was very insulated itself and didn't let anybody else in. So there was a little bit of a you've got your own thing. Why don't you just stay over there and do that? And it was only in the last few years or so that the opening opening of the borders, as it were, occurred and and then, you know, it was nothing to cross over and do things. At the time John Mahoney was doing commercials and and stuff and uh you didn't cross borders into that. People that did commercials didn't do theater and people that did theater mm-hmm. didn't do commercials. It was very pigeonholed and segregated and that all has blown off the map now. You know? Interesting. Yeah. Um, I mentioned in passing that you directed and mm-hmm. I don't want to gloss over that. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that so many of the acting company, certainly you, mm-hmm. Amy Morton, I'm aware of. Yeah. Obviously, Terry Kinney and and, yeah. and the founders were directing. What was the impetus for actors to do the directing? Was it a desire on your part? Was it part of the company ethos? What what drove it was that? a little bit. It was when Gary, for my particular situation, Gary Sinise was artistic director, and he said to me, "I think I think you ought to direct." And I went, "I don't." Re- I really. He said, "Well, look, you teach. What do you think you do when you teach?" And I said, "Oh, he said you direct. So direct. Here's this play by John Guare. You like him." I go, I love him. I love him as a playwright. That's why I think you ought to do it. Gary pushed me completely and totally into directing, and I really had no idea what I was doing. And, and this was Lighty Breeze. This was Lighty Breeze, which, you know, not the first play any, you know, novice director should pick up. I adored it. I thought it was strange and quirky and wonderful. And uh, Terry was married to Elizabeth Perkins at the time, and I thought, boy, she would be terrific in that Lighty Breeze, the young girl part. So caster in that. And the first time around, it was a mess. I mean, not the play. I was a mess. I didn't direct well. I didn't communicate well. I got very, you know, uh, worked up about all the, because you have to have such organization and detail for the big picture. And I just didn't particularly possess that. We did get another go around at it when they, somebody from the Festival of Sydney in Australia saw it and they said, we want this Wow. This play is so American. This play will speak to – and we were like, really? So it ended up going down to Australia to the Festival of Sydney in Perth and I got a chance to go back and redirect it after – it was at least a year. And I realized the mistakes I'd made and I realized a lot of things from working in between and I got another crack at it. 
And that was probably the best learning experience I'd ever had. And then I directed The Common Pursuit by Simon Gray, which was a great experience. And and then, the, you know, I would direct some for the high school audiences. I directed Taming of the Shrew that Harry Lennox – or no, no, he was in Midsummer Night's Dream. Harry Lennox played my Oberon and uh, I did Taming of the Shrew and, you know, a bunch of other little – projects for that diary of Anne Frank uh, for high school audiences and um, and then I directed Ring Around the Moon which was a bit of a debacle for me. We ended up doing it very late in the game. We needed a project for Tim Hopper who had just joined the company. He was brilliant as the twins. He was absolutely brilliant. The rest of the cast had been sort of short notice pickup and, and I was checking library books out about Ennui which is hmm. not the way to approach that kind of a project and that was kind of it for me. I kind of decided mm, I think I'm done. With directing. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Let's jump ahead now mm-hmm. because I want to make sure we have sufficient time <laughs> to talk about the experience of Osage County. Mm-hmm. I read that Tracy wrote Maddie Fay with you in mind. Yes. And then you almost didn't do it or get to do it. Can mm-hmm. you? Tell well, no, I that. turned him down flat you at least down. four really? times. Yes, four times. Why? Um, because I was doing Wicked and because I I didn't even read the play the first two times I turned him down. You I didn't said, even I've read it. I said, no, job, I can't do I'm it. Covered. I'm in this great thing. I really want to keep it going. I've got some other irons in my fire and I can't. Sorry, Tracy. And then he enlisted other people to bug me. About it. Mm-hmm. So I was getting bombarded from all sides. And I finally said, Why? Why do you need? He said, Because you have to do it. I wrote it for you. You're the one that has to do it. And I said, All right, I'll read it. I read it. And I thought, See, I've done this part before. I know who this woman is. This is just, you know, I'm not expanding doing this part. I'm not moving along. I'm not doing anything. And he still kept at me, kept at me, kept at me. And, um, then there came a point in Wicked where they said, okay, we're going to take a little break with the Chicago cast. We're going to bring some other people in and so you're going to have a little hiatus. And I went, oh, well, okay, huh. Well, I've got the summer off. I called Steppenwolf. I go, is Tracy's play cast? Is it still available? And they go, oh, my God, are you kidding? And I went, yeah. I said, I'll come, I'll come over and do it. It would be fun. It would be a fun summer show to do with everybody because by that point in time, a lot of ensemble people were – we're committing to it because it happened to be in the summer and that's sort of an off time hmm. for Hollywood or New York. So we're like, yeah, that'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be <laughs> Little fun did to you do. know. And it had been in workshop a couple times. So they had been working on it and, and uh, Ed Sobel, the dramaturg, had been working on it and massaging it and everything else. So, that, But even then, even through the Chicago run, uh, people were saying, well, New York, New York. I go, oh, this, it's not going to New York. It's too big. It's too long. There's too many actors. It's, it's, it'll never go. It'll never go to New York. Well, and it's my understanding that when the opportunity finally came, that there were a couple of producers who actually bid on it. Yes. Um, but when it became real, there was discussion in the company about should we do this? Yeah. And what what were the issues? Why didn't – it had already been a smash in Chicago. Right. Well, the issues are – as they always are with us because you are an ensemble which is a collective of people and a collective now of families and other careers and other engagements. And so then it becomes 
you know, is this the kind of thing that we formed our group to do? Self-generated work, plays specifically written for us, done, cast with a huge amount of ensemble members. Isn't this what we've talked about through our entire history? Isn't this what we're supposed to be doing? I mean, there was a lot of, lot of, um, really rugged soul searching because, you know, when you ask a bunch of people that live in another city to pick up and go to New York, it's, and we kvetch about it probably three times as much as any people I know, but it's like, oh, I got to find an apartment and then what am I going to do? And then my wife's at home or my husband's at home and then what are we going to do? And we got the, you know, how are we going to fly back and forth? And then you don't know how long you're going to be there and then you take a lease and then the show bombs. I mean, we have been through the ringer with all aspects of a New York experience. Unfortunately, it came out in the press as saying they don't want to come to New York kind of blanket statement. Hmm. They don't really care about New York. Now, that's interesting. I'd never seen anything in the press because... Well, it came out in the Chicago press. In the Chicago press, that, because yeah. I certainly, you know, because yeah. I'm, I'm friendly with the current uh, executive director of Steppenwolf, yeah. you know, I, I heard it from inside, and it was the question of what was it... On the one hand, all the things you say about yeah. this is the kind of work we were to do, yeah. but... You know, Amy was supposed to direct a show yep. the next season, yep. and suddenly Otherwise have to replace. Yeah. So it was it was the the balance of of exposing the work and exposing mm-hmm. the company's work mm-hmm. to New York again in its yeah. original incarnation, yeah. balanced against you know the, Everything the issues else. of yeah. as you say, family, and in fact how the company would operate yeah. in Chicago in that period. Yeah, because it would take a lot of people out yeah. and it would make it very difficult for Martha Levy as artistic director. Originally, I agreed only to do eight weeks <laughs> and the producers actually agreed to that. I said, I'll open it and I'll run it. And they said, all right, we have to have eight weeks. I said, all right, mm-hmm. eight weeks. I mean, people thought I was absolutely insane. And I said, no, I'm going to do eight weeks and then I'm going to go back to Wicked. Well, we came. The strike happened, the unprecedented right. strike, which sort and of – And were all stranded here. And we were unable stranded. to perform. Well, but and- you know, credit to our producers. They paid our housing – um, what we weren't doing anything, you know, we mm. were sitting, waiting, which we are not. The only reason we came to New York was to do this play. Right. So um, I think, though, that was the big master plan, to be honest with you. I think it had all to do with why it hit the way it hit and why we felt the way we felt. And I mean, I, I just I can't say I mean, I just think it was the ultimate divine plan. We also had Tracy Letts's father, Dennis, with us, who was at the time dying of lung cancer Yeah, um, that put a charge over everything. Um, so it was it was an unbelievable time. I mean, I I I, I think about it now and go, I, it's like a novel or something in a hmm. weird way. And not only did it stay but it opened and it became what it became and I don't think any of us really thought that that I think Tracy Tracy had a very prescient sense about it he's we were having a meeting backstage at Steppenwolf one day between shows and goes look I don't care whether it goes with you guys or somebody else I wanted to go and I wanted to go now and I think we're all like and he later apologized in an email and said I'm sorry to sound like such a jerk um, but I do think whether an artist knows when their time is, I think he had a sense of it. And, and Gary Sinise had that same sense during True West. True West has to go to New York now. So I think there are people that have the vision and hopefully those are the ones that you follow. 
I read about an occurrence uh, at the end of the run of Augusto Sage <laughs> County. You were back in Wicked. I've got to ask because this just yeah. seems insane. Yeah. You're in Wicked. You've left August and the story was whoever was playing Maddie Faye mm-hmm. was – Elizabeth Ashley was ill of the was closing Ill performance. The clo- yeah. And so – they called to get you to loan out to come the in. The stage manager called me Sunday morning about 9.30 and she said, Rondi, Liz is out sick. It's the closing day. I went, oh my God. Is she? Yeah, we think she's okay, but she can't do the show. Why don't you come and do it? Come and play. And I went, what? I said, Jane, that's it. I said, no, there's no way. I said, they will never let me. And we happened to have two shows of Wicked that day because we had a matinee and we had an actor's fun performance that night. And I said, there's no way. We've got two shows. And did, did, did. she said, just call him. Just call him. I called David Stone. He picks up on the second ring. I'm like, hi, David. I'm so sorry to bother you on a Sunday morning. And I told him the thing. He said, oh, yeah, I think that'd be great. I went, are you kidding? He said, no, I think it'd be great. <laughs> do the matinee of August and then come and do the Actors Fund of Wicked. But here's what I'm fascinated <laughs> about. At this point, certainly a number of the company members from mm-hmm. Osage were no longer oh, – no. that you'd worked with were not on the no. show. So you literally walked in cold. Obviously, you knew your part. They yeah. knew their parts. But you had a single performance where mm-hmm. you're suddenly in front of an audience – just doing the show with a whole new set of people mm-hmm. on a play that's all about family members who mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. so incredibly linked. Mm-hmm. That must have been extraordinary. It was, but it felt like being home is all mm-hmm. I can say. And I bowed down and I did when I met her at Miss Felicia Rashad's yeah, feet. Yeah. I mean, I walked in. I said, Felicia, this is your show. I'm here to serve you. I Whatever you want to do or go with me, I am there with you. And, you know, she kind of reared back and looked. At, she, she didn't know me from Adam. Hmm. And um, some of the other people I had known, the guy that played my husband I had never met, uh, the guy that played my son I had never met. But again, this goes to the structure of the play, the structure of how it's maintained on Broadway, which is different than in a basement production of Henry V or something. So none of that had changed. They just had me plugged into the equation. And I was very, very aware that the dynamic was different without a lot of people, but I knew who my character was and I knew what she needed to do within the course of the play. And halfway through... I think it was – well, it was right after the opening scene in the second act and Felicia threw her arms around. She said, oh, you are so fun to play with. And then we went out and did the dinner scene and she was unbelievable. I mean she grabbed a hold of my hand at one point and I said to somebody later, it felt like about 50,000 volts hmm. going through my – because it was her last show. Right. All bets were off. It was an amazing experience and one that I treasure. And I mean to do two Broadway shows in the same day, it's pretty, pretty special. I want to wrap up with two related questions mm-hmm. about Steppenwolf. The first is you've kept mentioning conversations and meetings. Mm-hmm. Is there actually a formal structure by which the members of the company deliberate on the future of the company um, or the is, direction of the company? Uh, there is now when we have our yearly gala, we plan in 
We have a yearly gala. Well, yeah, but a gala is usually people spend yeah. a lot of money, get dressed up, right. and but everybody has a nice it's meal. It's a weekend. It's a gala weekend. Uh-huh. And the way they plan it is they plan for the Monday after the gala, and that's the day we have an ensemble meeting. It happens huh. once. Martha's been shooting for twice a year. It's a little bit more difficult. But that is the time where uh, you come together and you actually, if you've worked at Steppenwolf during the last year, two years, whatever, you can say, you know what? This is what I've run into when I met my theater company and these are some issues that i feel we're ignoring and this is where i would like us to be going and then martha also will say here's the state of the nation basically it's a state of the union Mm -hmm. address basically we get debriefed we get informed we can be as active and involved as we choose to be or we can get the memos and the emails and go about our little lives so the last question is Mm -hmm. Given that you're veteran status with the company, mm-hmm. do you get to go to Martha and say, I want to do this play because I want to play this part? Absolutely, I could. Uh, I absolutely could. Now, whether she will be able to make that happen is depends on so many factors. I mean, among them are what are we looking at in the season? What are we looking at in uh, program selection for an audience? How do we feel about you doing that particular role? Um, you know, I mean, you see it happen because if somebody is, you know, somebody like uh, Lori Metcalf who commits to come back every two years and she is adamant about it. She says to me, it's important to me in my life. I don't feel passionate about a lot of things, but I feel passionate about doing theater and being back at Steppenwolf. It's important to me. And she does that. John Mahoney does it. There are people that do that. That's part of what they do. Now people will say, well, you know what? They can afford to do that. They If they lose money, it doesn't matter whether they go back and do a play or whatever. That is part of what they have worked in their life to afford themselves to do, which I think is terrific and I applaud them for that. Some of the rest of us are not in that category as of yet, so we do what we have to do. the commitment is not written down in stone when you're a member. You know, at one time they tried to sort of legislate legislate it as to you have to do this and you have to do that and it really – escaped us. Um, I could go and ask. I think that would have to be something that I was really, really, really uh, insane about because usually what happens is they come to me and say, we want you to do this or we think you would be great to plug into this. And um, I don't usually take it on unless I can do it and can commit to it because there's nothing worse than dropping out of a production, especially when they've built it not around you, but they've publicized it. Right. And, you know, it's very – Martha's in one of the toughest positions in the world to do programming and you can't rely on people who will, you know, at the drop of a hat go off to do movies or television. You cannot rely on that. So thus the expansion of the company and I think in a way it's made everything healthier. So wicked – for the foreseeable future or plans to go back well, to Chicago? Well, Wicked is – you know, I was making up my time when I left Wicked to go do August over at the National Theater in London and then Wicked was gracious enough to say to me, would you like to stay? And I said, I would love to stay on Broadway. Wicked is a big part of my life. It's afforded me many, many things and I've learned so many different things and to work with a team of producers like – 
Wicked has to work with Joe Mantello, which was a dream, and I hope I get to do it sometime again and something else. Um, it's just a great job, and to get to be in New York uh, afforded me to do an HBO movie in the fall, which I was able to do. Um, and it just provided me with so much. So, no, I don't know. Wicked's always going to have a little corner of my life, I think. Plus, I have the costumes in the wig. <laughs> have get up, we'll travel. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, that means we'll see you in Wicked for the foreseeable future Somewhere or see you on the street the in your costume and wig. That's right. Um, Rondi Reed, thank you so much for being with us today thank on you, Downstage Howard. Center. Thank you, Howard. It's been great to be here. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit our website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.